Without further ado, I want to continue to worship by turning our Bibles to John chapter 1. If you need a copy of God's Word, the ushers coming down the aisle, they'll be happy to get one into your hands. You're going to want one, as with every uh, Sunday, every weekend around here. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. John chapter 1, you'll find the Gospel of John. It's the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, about three-quarters of the way through the Bible. The first chapter of John, in verses 14 to 18. We're in the middle of a Christmas series called The Word Became Flesh, of course, because that's the essence of Christmas. Did you realize that? The Word Became Flesh, those four words, is the core of Christmas, a.k.a. the Incarnation. The Incarnation. A word that simply means God in the flesh. Just a big word, theological word, that means God in the flesh. The word became flesh. Unless you think that it's just a theological term that has absolutely no bearing on life, think again. Seriously, think again. Because the incarnation changed the world. Whether you believe in Jesus at this point, and I've been praying all week and praying this morning that indeed God would awaken faith in some of you, many of you, I trust. But whether you believe in Jesus or not, the incarnation changed the world. Christmas changed the world from the way we number the years. Just be, the way we number the years was changed because of the incarnation. Uh, the Bible that we have changed, was added to because of the incarnation. The nation in which we live exists in large part because of the incarnation. You can deny it all you want, but the facts speak for themselves from the calendar to the country. It changed the world, the incarnation did, and here's the point. It will change you and it will change your world if you believe it. It will. So by the time we're done here, I hope you do. That's the point and the goal of this entire message. That by the time we're done here, I hope you see and believe. I hope you see the incarnation and I hope you believe the incarnation. And if you already do, man, I hope the wonder of it all swells your heart all the more and fills your praise with every single verse and every single phrase that we look at here in the next few minutes. I trust that your heart will sing and that you can't wait to sing and worship at the end. If you already see and believe. And if you don't, I trust that you will so that your heart sings as well. You follow along, John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's the incarnation. 
And it started with this. God became man. God became man. Or as John says it there in verse 14, you're going to want to keep your finger on the text. The word became flesh. Flesh, do you see it? The word became human, humanity, a human being, flesh. That's the idea of the word there. God became man, man, just like you, just like me. And the word word, you see that? Word, capitalized, is God. The word word is God. Because we saw back in verse 1 that the word was God. Look, look back there for a second. In the beginning was the word, the apostle John wrote, and the word was with God, and the word, here it is, the word was God. So when it says in verse 14, the word became flesh, it means God became man. The second person of the Trinity did. The one who was with God and the one who was God. He took on flesh. Think of it for a second. He took on flesh. If you've been in church world for any length of time, I have to guess that like me, that phrase, that concept, that reality, that truth has just become passe to you. God became man. That's crazy. That's crazy. Not, not in the sense that it's not true, but the fact that he did so. God became flesh. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, actually became a man. I mean, that would be like you becoming an ant or a one-cell amoeba or something smaller if your imagination can think of it. When God became man, the eternal became temporal. The infinite became finite. The powerful became weak. The limitless became limited. The exalted became lowly. The son became a servant. The contrast couldn't be greater. The contrast could not be greater. God, man, the difference couldn't be more pronounced. The reality couldn't be more stunning. God became man. God became man. But he didn't cease to be God. And don't lose sight of that in all of this. God became man, but he did not cease to be God. True. He, he emptied himself. Yes, he emptied himself. Philippians 2. He was born in the likeness of men. Yes, yes. But he was also the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1. He was also the exact imprint of the nature, God's nature, Hebrews 1. For in him, the Bible tells us, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So while he was fully man, he was also fully God. Fully man, fully God. Now, if that makes your head hurt, or if that seems like an absolute impossibility, welcome to the wonder and mystery of the incarnation. Welcome to Jesus. Welcome to the one whose ways are so far higher than ours, we will never get our head around them. 
ever, ever. Like if that's what's keeping you from seeing the incarnation and believing in Jesus, you're, you're going to be kept forever. You're going to miss out forever. But that doesn't make those truths, the fact that we can't quite get our head around the fact that God became man and in doing so was still fully God and fully man, just because we can't get our minds around that doesn't make it any less true or any less believable. In fact, in fact, I would submit this to you, it's another reason to believe. Because God is that amazing. Who in the world would ever, in their right mind, though there are many who are not, who in the world would ever, in their right mind, follow a God, small g, who you can figure out, who you can do a psych evaluation on and you can know all of their ins and outs, who you know, you know the end like they know the end as if they did know the end. Who would ever follow a God like that? Who wants to follow a God like that? Who wants to follow a God like you and like me? The fact that we can't get our minds around the incarnation and the wonder of it, the wonders of his love is Yet another reason to believe in the incarnation. Believe that God's that amazing. And all the more so because he lived among us. He didn't cease to be God, yet he lived among us. Verse 14 again, the word became flesh and, here it is, dwelt among us. Among us. On earth. Not as a hermit or a recluse, but next to us. Not separate from us as if he was so much higher than us and beyond us and wanted to have nothing to do with us. Though certainly that would have been legit on his part. Holy as he was. Sinful as we are. Higher than we are. As low as we are. It would have been perfectly legit for him to live in some castle on an island in the middle of the sea. You know, completely separate from us. But he didn't. He didn't. What's the word say? Among us. He dwelt among us. Not separate, but near us. God with us. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And the word dwelt here, you see that? The word became flesh and dwelt among us? Means that he made his home with us. His home. In fact, the literal rendering here is pitched his tent among us. Pitched his tent or tabernacled among us. Like when God dwelt among the Israelites of old in the tabernacle of old. The tent of meeting. Meeting, as Moses called it. Same verbiage, same idea. Same verbiage here in John as we find in the Old Testament regarding the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where God dwelt among his people at that time. Same verbiage, same idea. It was the place of God's presence, the tabernacle was. The place where he met them and instructed them. The place where they worshipped him and honored him. The place where they came and bowed before him. The place where they sang before him. So that God and God alone was the spiritual and physical focal point of their entire lives. He dwelt among them. They were around him. And so his tent where he was, where Moses went in to the Holy of Holies to meet them, 
God became their spiritual and physical focal point of their entire lives. Same here. Same here. Jesus pitched his tent among us to be our physical and spiritual focal point. The one to whom we always look. Our physical example of how to live and our spiritual sacrifice for our sins. Our physical example for how to live and our spiritual sacrifice for our sins. Which means that Jesus lived among us to die among us. Jesus lived among us to die among us. Die for our sins. Our offenses against others and our rebellion against God. Sin that condemns us to hell and keeps us from heaven. Sin that every single one of us has and does to one degree or another. It's all rebellion against God. It's all an offense against God. And God became man to sacrifice himself for it. God became man to sacrifice himself on our behalf and thereby pay the price that we deserve, sparing us from hell and assuring us of heaven. Do you see it? Do you believe it? I hope so. Oh, I hope so, because if you don't, if you don't see the incarnation and the purpose of it, if you don't believe it, if you don't believe in the incarnate, you're doomed. You're doomed. I don't know how else to say that. That's the first part of the incarnation. God became man and lived among us. Second, God revealed his glory. God became man at the incarnation and God revealed his glory as in his greatness, his power, his majesty, the manifestation of all of his invisible attributes. As you've heard me say before, like the light of his fire. Light is the glory of fire. It shines throughout. Heat to, to that extent as well. The glory of God was revealed at the incarnation. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. His glory. We, John says, as in those who believe. Those who believe have seen his glory because those who believe are those who see. Those who believe in their heart in the incarnation of God become man, those who believe that in their heart see that with the eyes of their heart. See that with their spiritual eyes. Those who believe see the glory of God revealed in the incarnation because believing is seeing and seeing is believing. No belief, no sight. No sight, no belief. And it's not like God hid his glory. <laughs> Just the opposite. He revealed it for all to see, to the entire world, starting all the way back at creation. The glory of God was revealed in creation. Romans chapter 1 tells us this. 
And don't miss the linkage there that Jesus, as the word, as we talked about three weeks ago, Jesus was the agent of creation. Jesus began to reveal the glory of God when he spoke all of this into existence. But that was just a smattering. That was just a snippet of the glory to be revealed when he became flesh. Oh, I love that. And it's revealed for all the world to see. You, me, everybody. First in the creation and now in the incarnation. Like the glory of his power and the miracles that Jesus did. And the miracles that Jesus did is part of God revealing his glory. Part of Jesus doing it on behalf of the Father. Or how about the glory of his mercy and the compassion that he showed. Or the glory of his insight and the people that he met. Telling them things about themselves that nobody else knew. They couldn't understand how he knew. He told me everything I ever did, the woman at the well said. How about the glory of his devotion revealed in prayer? The glory of God's grace revealed in salvation. The glory of his plan revealed in the Bible. God's glory is everywhere. It's everywhere. And those who have seen it, believe it. Those who have seen him, believe in him. The embodiment of God's glory. The glory of the only son. That's how John says it here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the main way that God revealed his glory as the only son of God. The only son of God. Verse 14, again, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. God the Father. Once again, cluing us in that God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. The point being, at the incarnation, God revealed his glory in his son, Jesus, the son of God, who by virtue of that very phrase, son of God, son of the father, by virtue of that very phrase, clues us into the fact that he has the exact same attributes as God. That's how a son was thought of in first century Judaism. Like father, like son. We say it all the time. Usually our moms say it when we misbehave. Growing up, I heard that a few times along the way. Like father, like son. But in this case, it's literal. It's literal. Every single attribute of the father, the son also has. In all of the fullness that the father has, the son also has. Like father, like son. So every time we see son of God in the gospels, every time we see son of God as we study through the book of John in the coming months, we ought to think incarnation. We ought to think God in the flesh because that's exactly what it means. God, very God in the flesh. God's glory revealed. Revealed. In the old in the old King James version of the Bible, you see how it says there, we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father. 
digress here just for a second so that you're not confused. Maybe you grew up with an old King James Version like I did. In fact, I went back, pulled it off my shelf this week just to check and make sure that the way I had memorized it was exactly the way that it was written there. Sure enough, sure enough. We have seen his glory as of the only son from the father. The old King James Version translated it only begotten son. You know what I'm talking about? Only begotten son. And some people think that dropping the begotten part is a miss. You know, some sort of a slide toward liberalism or, or something. It's not. It's not. Begotten, awkward as it is, Old English, begotten is not a word in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament. It's not a word in the Greek. And there is a massive, massive risk that it conveys the wrong meaning. That Jesus was brought into existence by reproduction. That's one of the primary meanings of the word begotten. And there's a massive risk, therefore, that it would convey that Jesus was somehow brought into existence by reproduction. He wasn't. Nor was he created or brought forth in that sense or of any sense of the word. A common synonym for begotten is created. And so to use that word or continue to stump for that word conveys or could convey an entirely wrong meaning about Jesus. Better is the word only. Only. Which translates a Greek word meaning one of a kind or unique. One of a kind or unique. To say that God revealed his glory in his unique, one-of-a-kind son with the exact same attributes for all to see. All. Including you right now. Especially the attributes of grace and truth. Oh, don't miss this one. Jesus is full of grace and truth. God revealed his glory as the only son of God, full of full of grace and truth. You want to talk about a power-packed phrase. Second part of verse 14, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full, that is, of unmerited favor, just waiting to be poured out and then automatically replenished, never ever for one minute or moment lacking any amount of grace. That kind of, that kind of fullness, that kind of grace, unmerited favor, just waiting to be poured out, full of undeserved mercy. That is not giving us what we deserve, the punishment that we deserve. That's mercy. It's withholding punishment that we deserve. Jesus is full of that, full of unexpected blessing, full of unspeakable joy, full of unexplainable peace, never, ever lacking, and always, always flowing, full of grace. Don't ever doubt it. Don't ever doubt it when you stumble in sin. Don't ever doubt it when you're wrestling to get out. Don't ever doubt it when you think you've, you're too far gone. Don't ever doubt it because of your past or whatever it is. He is full of grace that is more than sufficient for your sin. And he's full of truth. Jesus is full of truth as well. Both and. Truth for life. Truth to have life and truth to live life. 
Truth to know the way and truth to follow it. Truth about our sin and truth about our future. Our future either dead in our sin leading to hell or our future forgiven of our sin leading to heaven. Jesus is full of truth in that respect. Truth about his promises and truth about ourselves. At the incarnation, God revealed his glory as the unique and only Son of God, full, full of grace and truth, full of everything we need for life and godliness. Never doubt it. Including grace to forgive. I just want to dial in on two aspects of grace and truth here just for a minute to emphasize this. He's full of grace to forgive, Jesus is. That is, forgive our sins. Once again, no matter what you've done or for how long, because God's grace is infinite. Infinite. You're, you cannot out-sin God's grace. Once you have believed in him and received him into your life, you cannot out-sin God's grace. You cannot sin to an extent that it exceeds the capacity of God's grace to show you unmerited favor and forgive you. Where would we be? Where would I be? God's grace is sufficient to forgive your sin and and the sin of the entire world all at the same time. He's that full. He's that full. Full of grace to forgive and full of truth to live. Truth to live. That is truth to live spiritually. Truth to live for him. Truth that Jesus spoke in truth that he embodied, especially when he died for our sin and rose again from the dead. Jesus embodied that truth. Jesus declared that truth. Jesus preached that truth. Jesus demonstrated that truth. He did so in parables. He did so in miracles. He did so just by straight up speaking to people about it. He did so by foreshadowing it. And then his apostles picked it up and amplified it all the more. Truth to live because he died and rose again to live. He's full of truth forever and free. God revealed his glory as the only son of God, full of grace and grace to forgive and truth to live. But here's the deal. You have to repent and believe in order to receive it. You have to repent of your sin and believe in him. Believe in the incarnation. Believe in the incarnate, the incarnate word. You have to repent and believe in order for his truth and his grace to be applied to your life. Now and for all eternity, you have to believe and receive. You have to ask for that grace and you have to believe in Jesus. You, you have to repent in the sense that you have to turn from your sin and you have to live for him. You have to say no to the world and yes to him. Does that mean that when you repent and believe in Jesus, you're going to perfectly do that? Say no to the world and yes to Jesus? No, no, no. But it will mean that you will increasingly do so 
Uh, your life might look like a, a stock you know, price change, uh, two steps forward, one step back here and there. But increasingly, you're going to be sanctified. You're going to become more and more like the Jesus who you believe in and receive. It does mean that. It doesn't mean that you can believe with your mouth and deny him in your heart. It does not mean that you can believe in him and just continue on with your life the way you want to live it. The purposes you want to achieve. None of, none of that can be further from the truth. When you receive the truth, I am the way, the truth, Jesus said, and the life. When you receive him, when you repent of your sin, you're turning from the world. You're turning to him and you're saying, I want to follow you. I can do no other. I'm compelled from the inside out. Oh, I hope you believe. You have to repent and believe. That's the first two parts of the incarnation. All from verse 14. How rich and deep is the word of God. Then, before he cites another aspect of the incarnation in verse 18, he gives us three reasons to trust it. He inserts three reasons that the incarnation is true in verses 15, 16, and 17. You, you might ask at this point, well, why doesn't he put the reasons that it's true last? Why doesn't he put verse 18 right after verse 14? I think it's because, I don't know this, I'm going to ask him someday in the Holy Spirit. Heaven. I think it's because he wanted to end with the point of it all. He wanted to end with the incarnation. He wanted to end with the main thing. He didn't want to end with the reasons for it. And so he inserts them in the middle here. And so I'm going to do the same thing for the same reason. He inserts these reasons to basically say we can be sure. We can be sure of the incarnation. We can be sure God became man and revealed his glory in Jesus. If you're sitting there and you're doubting all of this, like, oh, this is just a story from the days past, think again. Because, because John preempted that. John thought that there might be people like you that would need this to push you over the edge from your own life to the life of faith. Because first of all, John the Baptist said so. We can be sure about the incarnation because John the Baptist said so. John the Baptist, as in someone who saw Jesus with his own eyes, someone who baptized Jesus with his own hands, and someone who witnessed amazing things about him and heard about the amazing things that he did for the rest of his life. Verse 15, John bore witness about him. It's inserted as a parenthesis to indicate to us that this is kind of an aside here. I've got some reasons coming down the pipeline, different from the flow of thought that he started in verse 14. He says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, this is the guy, John the Baptist says, that I've been talking about and preparing for. He's the one. And though he follows me in ministry, he's preeminent. He ranks before me. Why, why? Because he existed before me all the way back in the beginning, verse 1. That's what John the Baptist said. And it's the first reason that John the Apostle cites for why we can be sure of the incarnation. Because John the Baptist saw him and testified about it, even to his own hurt, even to his own imprisonment, even to his own death. He declared the truth and died for it. 
which means we can be sure of it. But that's not the only reason. Second, believers are so blessed. We can be sure of the incarnation because believers, those who see and believe, believe and see, are so blessed. Verse 16, for from his fullness, John says, we have all received grace upon grace. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The word for indicates that what follows is a reason or support for the point that preceded it. In this case, verse 14, the point of verse 14. The fact that God's son became man and was full of grace and truth. Because from his fullness, verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. We've all received the grace of grace. We've all received the grace of truth. You see the flow of thought from verse 14 to 16? Verse 16 is a reason why we can be sure about the incarnation in verse 14. We can be sure because as believers, we are the beneficiaries of Christ's incarnate fullness. Blessed with blessing upon blessing. We could take all morning and all afternoon, all day, I would wager, if we had an open mic and, and just said, hey, come up here one at a time, just one or two sentences, and talk about one way in which God has blessed you because you've received Jesus into your life. All afternoon. It's evidence that the incarnation is true. We're blessed with blessing upon blessing, favor upon favor, grace in place of grace. From the grace of peace and, and joy to the grace of provision and protection and on goes the list. More than the rest of the world combined. We are blessed as believers, small percentage of the world as we are, we are blessed more than the rest of the world combined. I don't care how rich somebody lives. I don't care how well off. I don't care how intact or functional their family might be. Although in this day and age, for an unbelieving family to be intact and functional is more and more of a unicorn. Let's face it. We are blessed more than the entire world put together. And because of that, we can be sure of the incarnation that gave us such blessing. And then third, we can be sure of the incarnation because Jesus offers all that we need. We can be sure because Jesus offers all that we need. Look at verse 14 again, this time followed by verse 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The incarnation, in other words, the incarnation is true, John says, because Jesus offers far more than Moses. Far more than Moses. As amazing and respected as Moses was, as significant his contribution with the Old Covenant and, and all of the first five books of, of the Old Testament, as significant as all of that was, Jesus offers more. Jesus offers more. 
Instead of offering a shadow of things to come, like Moses did in the Old Testament law, Jesus offers the substance, the fulfillment of it all. Instead of offering some things, Jesus offers everything we need for life and godliness. Not just the expectation of righteousness. Jesus doesn't just urge us on and exhort us and encourage us and correct us regarding righteousness in our lives and, and expecting that like the law does. It's not just that, but Jesus offer, also offers the means to righteousness. The means to actually have righteousness. The righteousness of God imputed to our lives, credited to our account. Way more than what Moses could have ever done. He offers not just the truth of condemnation, but the means to avoid it. Truth and grace, grace and truth. All that we need for all who believe. Three reasons we can be sure about the incarnation. John the Baptist said so, believers know so, and Jesus is so. He is the embodiment of truth and grace that he so graciously pours out and offers to us. And last then, the last part of the incarnation we find here is that God became known. God became known. After saying God became man and God revealed his glory, John says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And no one has ever seen the actual essence of God. No one. No one. And, and about now, maybe some of you are thinking, what, what about Moses? Doesn't it say that he spoke to, to God face to face? Yes, yes. And anthropomorphism, that is a, a human-like reference and phrase to help us get understanding for how close Moses was in speaking to the Lord. But it also says in that same passage that God says, in fact, that no one can see me and live. And, and so, yes, people like Moses saw portions of God's glory. People like Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. But never God himself. He's invisible to us. And to see him is to die. He's that holy. And we are that unholy. But the only God, praise God. Oh, do you believe? Do you believe? The only God, it says, who is at the Father's side, Jesus, that is, who is in his bosom, who is as close to him as he can possibly be to him. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Once again, John refers to Jesus as God, in this case, the only God, adding to our knowledge of the Trinity. He's one. He's one. The only God who is at the Father's side, the point here is that we don't, need to see God the Father because he was made known at the incarnation by the life and testimony of Jesus. We don't need to see the invisible God. He made a way for us to see his son. He made a way for us to see his glory, his majesty, his beauty, and all of the rest. Everything Jesus did and said revealed his father. Everything, everything. Everything was a teaching moment. Everything was a revealing moment. He made him known. Explaining, catch this. Jesus made him known 
explaining God's nature and interpreting God's ways. Explaining and interpreting. I say it that way because that's what the phrase made him known means. It means to explain and interpret. Like I'm trying to explain and interpret this text. To, to make it known for everyone to see and believe. That's what Jesus did with God. In revealing him and making him known. Um, but with God, Jesus and only Jesus is uniquely able to do so. Uniquely. Only. Uniquely qualified to explain and interpret the Father because of his unique position at the Father's side, as close and personal as he could be, sharing the same essence and the same nature and the same thoughts and the same emotions for all eternity past. No wonder he was uniquely, no wonder he was the only Son of God who made him known. The only God who made him known. So God became known at the incarnation by the life and testimony of Jesus and also by the one who knows him personally. God became known by the one who knows him personally. At his side, the one in close fellowship with him, the one with whom he is one, Jesus says later on. I and the Father are one. So though no one has seen God the Father, catch this, the best way I can summarize it, though no one has seen God the Father, the one who is God and with God at his side has perfectly made him known. All at the incarnation when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you've never seen that until now, if you've never believed it, never repented and received the salvation God offers because of it, pray with me right now, will you? Pray with me to admit you're a sinner, confess your belief in Jesus, repent of your sin, and receive him into your life. Let's bow our heads. Right where you sit, in the quietness of your heart, just call out to God something like this. God, I admit that I've sinned and that I'm a sinner. You tell him. If you've never seen this stuff until now, if you've never believed it until now, start there in order to receive the blessing of it the benefit of it, the salvation of it. God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I know it and I own it. And then confess your belief in Jesus. God, I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. I do. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again for my life. You tell him, God, I believe. So I repent, Lord. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry for it. And I'm done with it. 
please forgive me, Lord. I want to live your way. It may not be easy to express that to the Lord, but it is simple. God, I repent. Please forgive me. I want to live your way. So I receive you now into my life for that very purpose. I receive you to be my Lord and Savior from now on. God, I admit, I believe, I repent, and I receive.